Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How's it, uh, how's it going today? Pretty good. What's going on with you, Tom? Not a lot. Uh, kind of rainy here in Chicago today, but that's kind of rather par for the course for this time of year. You know, intense, intense cold and rain followed by beautiful days, followed by days of rain and cold. But yeah. I might be able to beat you on the weather today. Oh, yeah? Um, today in Dallas, they're calling for lime-sized hail. Oh, God. It's the first time that I've ever seen or heard of uh, hail prediction or actual hail that's equated with fruit. It's usually like golf ball. Right. I, I, I was actually <laughs> just thinking that. I've heard golf ball and baseball sized hail, but I've never heard of like an in-between point being lime sized. That's really- I don't know. I don't know which is worse, <laughs> baseball sized hail or lime sized hail, but I know that I don't want to be out in either. No, not, neither one. Neither one is a good thing. Um <laughs> That's funny. Um, there are websites that will, or at least there were when we were having kids, but um, that will tell you what the size of the uh, fetus is as it's uh-huh. developing on a weekly basis. And it always, it starts with like comparisons to food items. Um, but it was this run of like a cherry tomato to an avocado, which became one of the nicknames for my first was we started calling them the avocado. But I made the joke <laughs> to my wife at one point that um, after about six weeks, we had a really great salsa going from uh, the kid. <laughs> so get some cilantro in there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think we talked about kicking off, uh, today's episode, um, in today's episode, we'll be talking about, uh, Tristan Egolf's Cornwolf. Um, and then our Maria's, uh, focus will be on, uh, the dark back of time, um, all souls and a bit more on Redonda. But to start things off today, we are just kind of talking a little bit about some, some Jerry Leary news. I think we'll do this as it merits, um, as a bit of an introduction, um, I specifically wanted to just sort of, um, I don't know if common on is the right way of putting it, but uh, the death of Kenzaburo Oe. Um, He's a writer. um, I've read a fair bit of his work, by no means all of it. And it's been some time, actually, since I've really engaged with it. Um, A major uh, Japanese writer, uh, Nobel laureate, uh, wrote quite a bit about um, his family life through his novels. his first son was born with a brain hematoma um, with part of the brain on the outside of the skull. And at that time, uh, the hospital staff suggested to he and his wife that they just let the baby die. And they refused to do that. His wife in particular taking a very strong stand on that this was not something that would happen. And the, the growth of his growth, his development how they navigated um, Japanese society at that time in the 1960s, 70s um, really was a focus of his work, as well as uh, uh, always political beliefs. He was a, a pacifist, uh, very much against uh, nuclear uh, disarm, for, excuse me, nuclear disarmament. Just a really interesting writer. Um, yeah, I feel I've read one or two of his novels and the 
the one that I'm remembering most, and and forgive me, I forget the the, the title, but it was about a family uh, growing up with a disabled child, um, and it was it was quite moving as you would expect. Um, but it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was sugarcoated, you know, it wasn't, it, he wasn't romanticizing, you know, kind of the, the suffering or the pain or just the, the frustration of, of that kind of life. And also I feel like he was, to me, um, his writing style was quite, um, similar to a lot of Japanese writers that I've read. It's, um, it's this kind of quiet, non-dramatic kind of prose that seems, that, that feels very, um, spare, but at the same time is, is really good. Um, I'm probably not describing this style very well, but I, I like it very much. Um, it's, you know, I've, I come from um, being a former Russian major in college, you know, this kind of Dostoevsky, you know, everything is like hair on fire (laughs) and the Japanese just like seem for the most part, I don't mean to stereotype, but many of the Japanese writers that I've, that I've read just kind of have this, this quieter type of prose. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain elegance to it. Um, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, A, you know, pointed is probably the wrong way of putting it, but like every word in its place there. And, and, and as you were pointing out, there isn't like an, an excess of bombast or anything. It, it It is a matter of fact, it's quite, quite a nice way of putting it, but also deeply, I think, introspective. And there's, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting ways of um, reflecting on what's taking place. Um, the, the one of his novels that, I mean, in many ways sticks out most strongly in my head is um, a personal matter, which very specifically uh, is digging into the around. This is actually an interesting writer to talk about in terms of um, pulling from their own life into their fictional work, uh, given the Maria's titles we're going to be talking about today. Um, So a little bit of a serendipity there, I guess. Although, I don't know, pretty crappy to put serendipity up against the man's death, I suppose. but no, I mean, a personal matter is detailing the reaction of a husband and father on the birth of the child who has pretty much the exact condition that his son was born with. Um, and in many ways, the, the man spirals in, in some fairly dramatic ways. But there is that a certain reserve almost um, in the prose, or at least how I remember it. Um, it's also, I mean, you know, this podcast is a lot about our, not just our, our readings, but our reactions to the readings and kind of the circumstance around it. That's part of why we're doing, you know, backlist that sticks out in our heads. And that title, um, I was actually, I remember very specifically reading it, um, while waiting to reserve the room that a year hence, um, my then fiance and I would use for our wedding reception. It was just this whole thing where you have to reserve it a year in advance, but it's first come first serve. So I got to the building at six in the morning and was, you know, it was like, I, this was like the thing I had to accomplish that month to make sure that everything could proceed and, and, and all those things. But I, I was sitting there reading what's probably a very strange book to be reading while you're waiting to reserve a room for your wedding reception with all of that, you know, out in front of us. Um, but yeah, it had a real it had a real effect on me, and I have a real affection for it. So it was, it was certainly sad to uh, 
to see his passing. Um, but an incredibly rich, incredibly like, from what I can tell, well-lived, um, meaningful life. So, yes, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know um, what percentage of his works have been translated into English, but I feel like um, it's quite a few that you can you can order um, and and probably get at your local bookstore of, of his titles. Yeah, hi- highly recommend digging into uh, Kenzaburo Oe's work. But um, you also have a, a bit of news to uh, to chat about today. Yeah, well, um, this is the inaugural year for the Republic of Consciousness Prize for the U.S. and Canada. And this is something that I spearheaded um, based very much and with the full cooperation of the Republic of Consciousness Prize in the U.K., which has been in existence now for seven or eight years. And so we looked in this inaugural year at literary fiction published by small presses during the calendar year 2022. And each small press that met the the criteria, the qualifications as a small press, um, was invited to submit one literary fiction title uh, for the prize. And we announced our long list um, in February of 10 titles. We had a uh, virtual Zoom party for the long list uh, winners on March 1st. And I think that you you attended that, Tom. I did. Um, and then on March 14th, uh, we announced uh, the short list of five titles. And this um, this was just announced earlier this week. So if, if you'll um, allow me, I'm going to just name those books off because they're all incredible books that I highly recommend. Um, they are Blood Red by Gabriela Ponce, translated from the Spanish by Sarah Booker, published by Restless Books. God's Children Are Little Broken Things, Stories by Arenze Ifekandu, published by A Public Space Books. A New Name, Septology, 6 through 7, by John, Jan Fassa, translated from the Norwegian by Damien Searles, published by Transit Books. Pollock's Arm, by Hans von Trotta, translated from the German by Elizabeth Laufer, published by New Vessel Press, and finally, The Sleeping Car Porter by Suzette Mayer, published by Coach House Books in Canada. So it's a great list. I'm, I'm proud of the work of the judges, and, um, and I hope that in whatever little way we can, um, being shortlisted for this prize gives these books and these publishers a little bit of a, a bump. Yeah, it's a fantastic prize. You guys have been doing an amazing job of promoting it. The long list was incredible. The short list is absolutely fantastic. Um, is the is there a recording available of the event back in February? You know, that's a good that's a good point. Um, we will be making the recording available. Um, I believe that that we, we did record the the entire. Um, Zoom event. It ran a little long. It was over two hours, um, but it was difficult to kind of tell all of these great authors and translators and publishers to, you know, stop talking about their books. So, um, but yes, we will be um, putting that up on our website for the Republic of Consciousness Prize. And you can also follow the prize on Twitter. It's at USROFC is the Twitter handle. 
Cool. And we'll make sure we get that into show notes as well. And uh, yeah, in a future episode, we'll let you know once the recording is up and live. But it was a great event. Two hours is a long event, but it was fascinating and really interesting and having so many different voices going. Um, so many, I mean, so many publishers, translators, authors, um, hearing from the judges. It was just, it was a really good, I thought, really, um, really fun event. So you, you guys are, yeah, you guys are doing great. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right. So um, we are going to leave that little bit of the podcast there. And when we come back, we will be talking about uh, Tristan Egolf's uh, Cornwolf. Can't wait. All right, and we are back, and we are talking about Tristan Egolf's Cornwolf. Uh, this was one of my recommendations. Uh, it's a frankly bizarre novel um, about a lot of a lot a lot of things, but in particular, uh, in an Amish werewolf. Um, but that's in some ways almost background to a lot of what else happens in the novel. Um, so. Yeah, I'll kind of leave it there um, for that like brief descriptive part. Um, Lori, what did you what did you think of this? Do you still want to do this podcast with me after reading this book? <laughs> I like your taste in books, Tom. Um, Good. And this this read has not changed that. This is a very um, uh, bizarre, quirky book. Um, as I've explained to you uh, in some of our discussion back and forth about it, Tom, this this book really hit home with me, not because I'm a werewolf and I don't know any werewolves either, as far as I know, um, but I grew up in central Pennsylvania in what most people think of as Amish country, but I was actually a little bit a little bit west of Lancaster. So in my community, it was mainly Mennonites, still is mainly Mennonites. I grew up there um, and my family still lives there. My family on both sides actually have lived in the same small rural community in uh, Pennsylvania, what's referred to as Pennsylvania in Cornwolf. Um, and we still kind of um, cutely say that uh, around town. Um, and they've been there for over 300 years. In fact, both sides of my family were in the first uh, U.S. census, hailing from the same county. So take take from that what you may. And wow. maybe I do have werewolves in my family, uh, given that. But um, it's a very small place. Um, I grew up with Mennonites all around. Uh, some of them went to my elementary school. They only go to school until eighth grade. Most of them went to a regular Mennonite school. But, you know, horse and buggies and farm sales and fields and cows, that was all part of what I grew up with. And this was just so reminiscent of that. And I feel that um, Tristan Egoff just really got the, not just kind of some of the, the contextual details about living in that area, but also the tone too. There's a little bit of a, there was always a little bit of a friction in my community between the Mennonite community and the non-Mennonites. And that friction is, I think, very much palpable 
in Cornwall. Um, and so that was just a real thrill to me. A lot of the last names like Kreider and Stumpf and Stoltzfus, I mean, those are all names, Yoder, that I grew up with in my little community too. Um, but it is a damn outright weirdo book. Um, the, the book starts out kind of, um, I think, not so unusual. It's a, a guy named Owen, and he's coming back to the community. He grew up in, in or around this community, and um, he's kind of a, a washed-up guy by the time he comes back to, to um, Amish country. And he gets a job uh, right off the bat as a news reporter for the, the local news rag. And he's been working, I think he was a, a journalist at a small town paper in Florida before he came back home. And um, so weird things start happening in the community. Um, people say that they see something, some kind of beast or animal. So he starts investigating these stories. And also he kind of has an agenda insofar as he's always been interested in boxing and has always really secretively wanted to be a boxing writer, a boxing journalist. And so he's got a friend that's the local star, Roddy, at this um, this boxing club. And so Roddy kind of gets him into the club. And uh, the coach there, a guy named Jack, is... Um, kind of a mysterious guy, kind of a bottled up, serious, straight laced, you know, no nonsense coach guy. Um, but there turns out to be a little more to Jack than meets the eye. And Owen starts to uncover this. And so it, it kind of, it, the whole thing becomes kind of a, a great mystery in terms of what's going on and whether there really is a beast out there. Yeah. Um, in, in my little like quick synopsis, I didn't really, I didn't touch on those elements, but I think there's, I mean, there, there's even more um, in terms of the friction that you're, that you're pointing to and speaking to um, in what Egolf's doing. I mean, he's, he's really talking about or, or addressing anyways, the, not just the friction between uh, different ways of life coexisting in the same space, but even within those, you know, different tribes, the, the, the various tribalisms that develop. I mean, there is a, a stunning amount of corruption within um, the Amish community um, in this area. Um, it's also worth mentioning that the uh, names of the towns uh, are just absolutely wild. Uh, Blue Ball, Intercourse, and so on. Um, and these are real names of towns. Well, that when you mentioned that to me, I, I, I guffawed pretty hard. Um, I... I, I, there's part of me that wishes that was just a, a stroke of um, uh, brilliance from Egoff, but nope, that was just, that was just life being, you know, you can't write it apparently. You, it, th those things just sort of happen and develop. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there, there is this, there is an element of corruption and that's part of an, and agendas I think are, are, are an interesting way of looking at it. There are a lot of different folks with different agendas, um, all intersecting um, and all kind of competing with one another in different ways um, from folks who are taking advantage of the corruption to enrich themselves within these communities 
um, to the folks who want to expose it, even though they're no longer a part of the, of the Amish community. Um, the folks in town who see um, the Amish as people just to pick on versus those who respect their way of life. Um, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, social, almost almost a social realist novel, if not for the fact that there is likely a werewolf of some kind ripping around town and tearing apart cornfields and attacking livestock, um, et cetera. Um, yeah. Which, it, yeah. Go it's, ahead. Um, one thing to, to note is, is that as Owen is getting more and more kind of tipped off to some weird stuff happening, um, he actually goes to a a library type place that the Amish have set up, and he he reads about an ancient curse. And this this book takes place in 1993. It was published, I believe, in 2006. But the but the story takes place in 1993, and so there's not there's not uh, smartphones. There's not Google. There's not all of those things that we would think, oh, well, you know, this would have been, he could have found out this information so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's all of those things that haven't developed yet that kind of make, make his, his role kind of almost like a gumshoe detective trying to figure out like what, what's going on here. It's interesting that once you, once you pointed that out and, and made that, I mean, what's also interesting is that when this was published, there were, I mean, there were cell phones, but the iPhone I think had maybe just come out or was, yeah, was just only a couple of years old, old at that point. I mean, so this, I mean, what we're even doing now would not have been possible at, at that time, which is fascinating. Um, but there's a real um, uh, offbeat X-Files episode vibe. Uh, to to this, um, there's a, a specific episode where um, they were dealing with like a, like vampires in this small town. That the tone of that one that was a little bit goofy, a little bit silly, but at the same time, like you know, uh, small town rural horror with a comic edge. And that I think is in some ways what what Egolf is doing here. He's he's using all these elements to kind of pick at and knit at. Um, these these social constructs and these social constraints and and really kind of interrogating it, um, which I mean, which fits with what seemed to be his his overall project. Um, I mean, very quickly, Tristan Egolf was a an American writer. Um, his first novel was uh, picked up by Gallimard in Paris, which would seem bizarre, but would and is frankly bizarre, um, but. Egolf was living in Paris and had taken up with uh, Patrick Modiano's uh, daughter um, and eventually showed Modiano the, the book he'd been working on and Modiano put him in touch and he'd been rejected by 70 U.S. presses because his first book, and I want to get the name perfectly, um, was Lord of the Barnyard, Killing the Fetid Calf and Arming the Aware in the Corn Belt, which is about a lot of things, um, but um, the back... I don't know, it's like a 500-page novel, I think, and the back half of it, at least, is centers around a uh, garbage strike in a small town uh, or small city. Uh, it's weird, very weird, like this, but also like you can feel the almost creative juice behind it. Um, his next novel was much shorter, called "Skirt the Fiddle," about a rat catcher, and he's 
his characters are always sort of existing in these liminal spaces, like the just like walking the cracks in different societies, occupying jobs that no one else would care to do and would per- perhaps look down upon, but are also at the same time essential to um, the functioning of the society. And in some ways, that's what the corn wolf or, you know, the curse is representing is this explosion of this explosion and clearing out of um, a lot of what's built up the, the negative, you know, you want to say negative psychic energy within, within a group um, bringing to light a lot of the nastiness that happens wherever people gather. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. And, and the last thing I want to say is I mean, he, he, this book came out after his death. Um, Egolf uh, did kill himself. Um, I believe he'd already turned in the, the, the draft or some edits. Um, uh, he was politically very active, um, was part of something called the Smokestown Six, where um, during a campaign stop, he and um, five other men uh, stripped down and stacked themselves uh, in a pyramid, uh, referring to the then Abu Ghraib scandal that was um, going on and as, as an attack on um, George W. Bush and the Republican Party. Um, so, I mean, he had some very specific political engagements and, um, some serious mental health issues. Um, but yeah. I, ju- I just wanted to make the comment that, um, there is, there is a very palpable tension here between what are referred to, um, as the English and the orderlies, the English being, you know, the, the regular, the regular Caucasians walking around and the orderlies being the Amish. And there are some, some Mennonites in this, in this book too, I believe, but um, at all times, Egolf is extremely respectful. I think of, of the Amish community. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I felt like there was, there was no condescension. There was no judging that these are, you know, are, benighted people or they are they're they're not right in doing or feeling or believing what they do in fact there's um there's a couple um in the book a, a loving couple i think it's um fanny and jonathan and mm-hmm. their story is really quite lovely and there's also lots of um lots of of talk in the book about the community members of the amish community helping each other. And that's very much, um, uh, the same with the Mennonite community that I grew up with. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, anything that anyone in that community needs and they always, they always come rushing and there's always more hands than are ever needed to kind of help build someone's house or a barn or, or childcare or just anything. It's a very, it's a very close and communal Thing. And I think that, I think that he represented them quite well in, in this book. Yeah. And I also feel that, um, some of the folks, uh, within that community that are doing not just illegal things, but morally reprehensible things are put into even starker relief by those descriptions. I mean, he gives the example of, of the best of this community, what, what its absolute strengths are. And so the folks who are taking advantage of that for their own gain, almost take on a, an even more sinister aspect to them. Um, yeah, some really, some, some really disturbingly, um, 
awful people uh, crop up in this book. And interestingly, I don't really feel like uh, the werewolf is one of them. I, I don't really, I mean, there's something something else happening there um, with how that particular character, that creature uh, functions within the community and within, within the book, um, though it does do some pretty nasty things. Well, there is this um, ancient curse that mm-hmm. Owen discovers um, that dates back to Germany and, you know, when uh, the groups of people that are now considered Amish and Mennonite were considered heretics in, in Europe and kind of had to flee for their lives. Um, they were, they were burnt at the stake, you know, just like witches and other types of, I guess, nonconformists in terms of the religion of the day. Um, and so this ancient curse and whether this ancient curse is now, um, is now coming to fruition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, through these characters is kind of juxtaposed by, um, this kind of concept of intergenerational trauma. Um, and in some ways, uh, Tom, there are some echoes I feel of John Crow's devil, the, uh, the book that we just talked about in our last episode. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, you mentioned that in an email as we were getting ready for this, and that just kind of hit me like a, a bolt from the blue. Um, yeah, it's it's the interesting, it's the combination of the things that folks don't talk about uh, that they don't want to, uh, you know, speak into existence or acknowledge within their communities. Um, so the various things that people hide, but how nothing really stays hidden to a certain degree. Eventually everything, everything circles back around. Um, you have the character and I need to just look at it to make sure I pronounce the name properly. Um, Benedictus, the names are phenomenal. Uh, Benedictus Bontrager. Um, he is one of the higher ups within the orderlies. Um, he uh, is functionally a minister within the community, and he's an absolute bastard. Um, uh, also a drunk, all sorts of things. Very similar, almost a combination in some respects of um, uh, the pastor and John Crow's devil um, and uh, the apostle in terms of like his his effect. He's both he's both of them in some very specific ways, but almost in a way, um, the wrong parts. Like he, he is the corrupting influence of the apostle, um, without any of the, the true charisma or supernatural power of the apostle, um, combined with, uh, pastor Bly's just sort of brokenness, um, and, you know, drunkenness and refusal to 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 do what his flock needs to do without the redemptive arc to some degree that that Bly goes on um yeah i it, that 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 character specifically has those echoes uh, of it and and again just we're talking about in in both novels you're talking about communities that um are simultaneously part of this larger world, but in some respects isolated or cutting themselves off from that larger world. Um, the interactions are, you know, they, they very much bounce off of each other, um, exchange of goods, that sort of thing. Um, but that is sort of the the end of it to a certain degree. Um, and then these explosions of violence and um, clearing of the underbrush that seem that seem to almost 
have to happen. I mean, there, there's, as this novel builds to its crescendo and it's a long crescendo, we can maybe talk a little bit about where the novel doesn't quite work in a second, but as it builds to its crescendo and keeps ramping up, there is almost a feeling of inevitability about it that like, as things are, as more of the information is given to us, more is unveiled. And there's a lot that I don't think we're going to talk about because it's interesting and fascinating how it, uh, how it's revealed and how it all unravels. Um, at no point did I think that um, in my first reading or, or more recent readings that like it, it could go any other way that this is, this is what was going to happen, what had to happen. Um, and I think that's also very much, how John Crow's devil um, played out in the end. Um, but on that point, or on the point of how the novel does or doesn't work, um, it's not a perfect novel. Like, like John Crow's devil is, I think, as pretty damn close to that. This is not. This is a very, very messy novel. Uh, it drops threads. It drops characters. I mean, you brought up Owen. Um who is really the, in many ways, the focus and the driving force of the first half or so of the book. And he's practically gone in the second half, or, or at least by comparison, he's, he's barely a, uh, he's barely, a, you know, he's more scenery by the end than he is an, an actual like protagonist within the novel. Um, and I think that's, I think he was, I think Egolf was writing a, a really big something and, um, it just, and it's, he's a good writer. Like he knows how to write sentences that keep you moving. There's a propulsive quality to this novel. It just wasn't tight in the way that it kind of needed to be to really like go to that next step, I think. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. It, it's not a perfect novel. I think that, um, you know, there's this, everything is kind of culminating to, to Halloween night where um, you think that, and the community is kind of in a frenzy almost about, you know, what, what is this beast? Where is this beast? We've got to find this beast and excise it or him or whatever from our, from our community. And the community, and they kind of turn on each other in a way that I thought was similar to John Crow's devil too. Mm -hmm. I mean, they kind of, they kind of become a little less, human uh or humane um in the way that they they interact because they're all just kind of whipped up um you know needing to needing to get this this thing out of their community and i wanted to ask you tom about this element because i feel like maybe i didn't get it very well but music plays a big role in this this halloween night episode where they're in a barn and um they're doing some not very nice things to the police and um and it's almost it almost feels like you know like they have they have to have blood you know they're they're really kind of seeking for some kind of um vengeance and i wondered there's the character Ephraim in the, in the book, and he seems all through the book to be very, um, moved isn't the right word, um, agitated almost or invigorated by this really kind of hard metal music. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that plays again in the barn on Halloween night. And I just would be interested in your thoughts about the role of music. 
I mean, I, I think, and this is probably, I mean, this is almost certainly coming from like cultural representations of, you know, this community, but that's not really the kind of music that I would expect to hear played. Uh, I don't really expect to, you know, walk by uh, a buggy and hear, you know, Megadeth blasting out of it or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I think in some respects it is, it is also, it is the younger folks in the community um, expressing themselves and expressing some of the emotion and, the wildness inside that they're trying to, that, that frankly is just finding, it's finding any steam release, right. To get out, but it has, you know, almost a, it, it, it builds on its, on itself. The more they listen, the more the music is played, the more extreme, the actions that are taken. Um, it is a really fascinating and kind of fun image of a Metallica concert being played out, you know, at, at a barn, um, in, in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, I, I think, I think, I think that that's what he, uh, Egolf was going for. At least that's what I'm taking from it, that the music was a, a manifestation of a lot of what was already building up and about to take place with the emergence of, and I mean, it's stated within the, the first few pages when Owen, first shows up to town, but the, um, I, uh, I believe they call it the blue, yes, the blue ball devil, um, who had emerged previously disappeared and now seems to be emerging again. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of what, what I, I took from it. Cause that's just, again, you know, cultural representations uh, and all that, and not being especially familiar with the Amish community. I, I just don't see that music as being a strong part of of the community so it in some ways it represents for me or at least i think it functions with the novel as another one of those breaches in, in the decorum leading to what you were describing the 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 lust for blood the desire for vengeance the the need to exercise this demon from within the community resulting in the people becoming progressively more demonic themselves there's um not a lot of female characters in this book. No. But one female character plays a very prominent and memorable role um, towards the end, um, going into Halloween night, uh, Halloween Eve. Um, and it's Griselda. And this is a, a woman who raised her own child, Fanny, but then also raised her... Um, her brother's child, um, who is Benedictus's uh, son, Ephraim. Um, and she she really does like a 180 on yep. us. Um, you're feeling like, oh, this sweet little Amish lady and Benedictus was a horrible father and he abused Ephraim and, and she like took him in and uh, the poor kid didn't have a mother and he lived with her for three years and she raised him. And now like some of the, the closest relations this, this child has are, are with Fanny, who's just like a sister to him and Griselda. Um, Ephraim even ends up in jail and uh, Griselda, uh, you know, steps up and says, I'll take custody of him. You know, I'll be responsible for him while he's on parole and 
<laughs> I don't want to give it away too much, but I wondered, do you, do you feel like there's anything symbolic or bigger in her role that, that Egolf kind of wants us to see? I'm trying to think of how to address that without going into the big, like the big reveal, the, 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 I mean, literally the big reveal of the novel. Um, I mean, in, in that respect, I think Griselda's in, in some ways representing the, the fullness of the community. I mean, she is, you know, as you were, as you brought up earlier, you know, she steps in to support and to raise, raise her nephew and to provide a home for this child and, and to, to go as far as needed to make sure he has, has a, something akin to a loving home. Um, and when she does the 180 and when she does reveal a completely different aspect to her personality. Um, there's an abandon to it. Like she isn't, there's a cruelty in what happens, but it isn't even a cruelty that she's reluctant about. She, she's giving into it. She's enjoying it. Um, she wants to be cruel. Um, and, you know, I, I, we've been talking about this as a, as a novel that where I, I keep harping on the idea of this as a novel of like, you know, so, you know, social strictures and ruptures and all that. I, mean, I think that is what she is. Like she is one, she is a, a member of the community that is equally in some, in some regards in both camps. She is a, a good person who's doing good things, who um, upholds the values of the community. She also ha has done and wants to do things that completely violate that entire social order. Um, and I, I, I think that is what is taking place with her um, on top of really just in, in an almost cinematic way, slamming home the idea of what the hell just happened. Like what is, what, what, what is, what is going on? And also like the, the, the degree to which this curse, this entire happening occurrence um, is rocking everything about um, this community and, and what it what it is and what it stands for and how it's able to even be those things. Well, that's interesting. That it, that perspective is interesting in terms of her fractured identity because I kind of saw it as something different. I. I saw it as something that she was pretending to be a good person, but really she's almost the quintessential witch. Mm. I mean, I can certainly see that. I think though that like, and that's, that could be the complicating thing though, right? That like, you know, I, I, I guess, yeah, I am arguing that she's frankly both that, that, and that oftentimes the witch is even that, um, yeah, I mean that that would be an interesting thing to know is like how did how did over the process of the the book's development what was Griselda over time? Did did she start off in one direction and then had to become something else or was she the witch and this is a way for for Egolf to kind of complicate that to to make it a little bit more of a full person who also happens to to be that um yeah. And this is the thing. I, I knew in suggesting it, 
this it's a weird freaking book like it's just it's just bonkers like he's doing some really weird weird things with how what he's writing about how he writes about it but there is just so much creative energy in in this novel like there there's something really interesting going on um yeah i will i, I will definitely bring it into the store i will definitely hand sell it because I can just think of three or four customers off the top of my head that this this they will love this book because yep. it is it is exciting. Um, it you know it definitely keeps you turning the pages. It's mysterious, um, and it's just the um, the world that he depicts is is a real world, and I think you just like look at how many people go on vacation to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's, it's something that people are curious about. Yes. Yeah, that, was, that was actually the question I was about to ask is, well, so what, would this be a book that would, that would make it into, into your, onto your stacks, into your shelves, be part of your backlist. And, um, but that, but the idea of like three or four customers that would absolutely love it. That is 100% how I viewed this book. Um, I would make sure it was around for certain times of year. I would see, you know, I would hand sell a, a customer a different book and see their reaction and be like, well, you know, this one might actually make sense for you next. Um, yeah, I think that it is for a customer that um, that enjoys the bizarre mm-hmm. um, and kind of the wildly imaginative and um, is just like, ready to, to be all in for the ride. And I think that, you know, anyone like that is just going to have a, a great time with this book. Um, to wrap it up, uh, what other titles, I mean, so what, what title would a customer read and react to that um, you would then think, oh, this one next? Because I'll, I'll tell you, this is always something I, well, I did do that. It's something I almost struggled with. I almost needed more a constellation of titles to like know that a customer was engaging with or interested in to to think that this is the one. Because that's the other thing about hand selling is that you can ruin their trust in you um, if you <laughs> hand them too many weird things. So, oh man, um, I wasn't prepared for that question. I should have been. Can you think of any titles? Well, so this is the funny thing is I've been thinking about it over the last few days in preparation for this, and I realized I I'm, I am struggling. Um, I mean, I, I, as a cop out, uh, the last werewolf by uh, Glenn Duncan actually does some similar things, and I think it's also interesting how rare how few werewolf novels there are as compared to like vampire and and other monsters. Um, I think that's just that's a different discussion, but I think it's an interesting one. Um, but that one does kind of dig into, that one has a real sense of humor to it. Um, I mean, it is out and out a, a werewolf horror novel, um, in a very different way. Um, but beyond that, I almost think some of the earlier fiction from like, uh, an Amelia Gray, I mean, it doesn't really match in terms of prose style or even, even content, but there's that sort of, um, wild abandon to that that idea of storytelling um, as being a way of pushing boundaries, a way uh, of really kind of shocking the reader um, that I think works um, in that connection. But that's that's probably a tenuous uh, a tenuous comp at best. Yeah, I'm like 
I'm racking my brain and I can think of some fantastical books, but not really any any that are quite like this. Maybe the best comps for this are his previous books. I don't know. Maybe he's sui generis. I mean, that would be like, I mean, the, the, the skirt, skirt and the Fiddle, not so much. I feel like that was one, I mean, it was quite good. Um, it's doing some interesting and similar things, but it's also just very different. It's also so much tighter. Um, but Lord of the Barnyard absolutely is in conversation with this one. Um, and that is <laughs> amazingly enough an even wilder, um, less controlled novel than um, Cornwolf. Um, yeah, I mean, so sui generis might be a good way. I mean, that's a pretty good way, I think, of describing uh, this very small but really impressive body of work. So. Unique, for sure. All right, so for uh, this episode uh, in our exploration of Javier Marias's work, um, we're going to be digging into uh, his novel All Souls, as well as the false novel, as it's sometimes called, uh, Dark Back of Time, and uh, touch a little bit more on Redonda and uh, Marias's relationship to it. Um, so I think, I, I believe I said in the previous episode that All Souls was my, uh, my first Marius novel. Um, I, it has a very special place for me uh, as a result. Um, and I don't know that when I first read it, I frankly got everything that he was doing in it. Um, reading it this uh, more recently, um, I'm not a big rereader. I don't know about you, Laurie. Um, I tend not to go back too often. I like to dig into like a full body of work, but I don't often go back and read uh, a book a second time around. Um, but I'm doing that for this because, well, I kind of have to. Um, and it's just, and also, it's, I mean, it was literally almost 20 years ago at this point, which is a weird thing to say, that I read All Souls. So I didn't, I don't know if I picked up on how haunted of a novel um, it is and, and how much the ghost story, I feel like, plays a role in, in what he's doing um, in this book. But. Yeah, I, um, I read the book All Souls much more recently than you uh, a year or two ago and um, a backtrack of time even, even uh, more recently. Um, and it wasn't my first Marais, but I feel like this book, it, it feels, many of his books feel autobiographical, but this one, this one definitely felt autobiographical to me in a way maybe that the others weren't quite as closely on point from what I understand was his actual life. And getting to your point about the ghost story, I would say that there is kind of a, a loneliness to this book mm. that I feel, um, you know, he's at, he's at Oxford doing a teaching stint, um, Spanish guy, 
rambling around Oxford, um, kind of has a lot of time on his hands. Um, and of course, the parts that I loved are, you know, going into the antique bookstores and finding all of these interesting books that he's um, that he's been trying to hunt down and getting the, the bookstore owners to kind of help him um, find the books that he's that he's longing to read. But, um, but yeah, I, the, the feeling that I remember is, is loneliness, which maybe goes to the ghostliness that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, it's also, it's an interest, it's an interesting novel in how it does. He, he starts it, um, by almost arguing against the relevance of his time, um, spent, um, in Oxford. Um, the narrator. Um, and that's something that we'll, we'll touch on in a minute, the, the separation between Marius, the writer and the, the narrator uh, of the novel. Um, there's, I mean, he, he at, the, at the outset, he complicates who's actually speaking, that this is not a clear recit, you know, you know, recounting of, of this person's time teaching in Oxford and, and living there for uh, a couple of years, but this is the the take of the person who is now writing it, um, which is just a very Marius thing of creating a remove upon a remove upon a remove, so that you don't at any one no moment know exactly who is saying what or why. Um, but um, and I'm sorry, I was incorrect. It's more towards the end of the novel, and I'm not going to be able to pull the page quickly. Where he, uh, the narrator, very much thinks of this. This is sort of like a, a breathing mark in in his history. That this was just a, a moment in time, and yet, if that's the case, why does it necessitate 200 plus pages of writing and recounting and thinking and dwelling and redwelling uh, upon all the circumstances, um, which? Again, I think plays into the the, the loneliness you're speaking of. Um, and one of the strongest images I have of this novel is, uh, you know, the end where he's you know thinking where he's comparing his time in Oxford, not even cleanly comparing it, but setting it up against uh, his life with um, his wife and child now back in Madrid. So I mean, it, it is very much a a looking backwards um, at a particular moment. But clearly, a moment that meant more than perhaps he wants to portray it as as having uh, meant to him at the time. Um, it's just a very tricky thing that Marius does in how he plays with memory and how he plays with um, what someone, what what any of the characters are asserting about themselves at any given time. Um, there's a little bit almost of the self as being such a fluid thing that what you say you are at a given moment can be radically different from what you say you are in the next moment, the multitudes that we contain. And um, I know, I mean, I certainly know that when I first read this, that thought um, was very attractive and very interesting to me um, at that moment in, in my life, in my time. Um, and so how then does, does all souls relate to the false novel, uh, dark back of time. So as you pointed to, um, there are some relatively strong autobiogra autobiographical components to um, All Souls. Uh, Marius was a lecturer at Oxford for a couple of years. Um, 
the characters in All Souls are fictional, but they are pulled from people that were in his life. And after All Souls uh, came out, uh, and this, I believe this was his fifth novel, um, something along those lines, um, and one of the first ones to really, really starting to take off. Um, and a lot of the reviews referred to All Souls as a Romanoclef. Um, and making very some very strong assertions that he's you know he's really put a very thin coat of paint on top of his life story, which he took umbrage to as a proud writer. Um, and I don't know how many writers were more proud than uh, Javier Marias. Quite frankly, he definitely says some things in interviews that right that you get a clear sense of his opinion of himself, um, which is fine. He he probably earned it. Um, but also, uh, there's an affair in this. Um, do I say, okay, there's there is an affair in this novel, um, and in folks making the assumption that this is just Marius's life, they actually made the assumption that he ha- was having an affair with one of his colleagues, um, who is married with kids, who he uh, says he had a perfectly fine relationship with, but at no time were they ever lovers. Um, so dark back of time, it, it's reductive to say it's a response to all that. I mean, it is partially that, but I think it's almost as much a novel as, um, all souls is even with the, the claim, the, you know, authorial voice that he, he places at the outset that, um, there's fact and there's fiction, um, all Souls is fiction. What I'm about to tell you is fact. Um, because, and there are a number of reasons I think that's the case. Um, but I do want to just quickly read the opening line um, in uh, Esther Allen's translation of Dark Back of Time because it might be my absolute favorite uh, line by Marius. I believe I've still never mistaken fiction for reality, though I've mixed them together more than once, as everyone does, not only novelists or writers, but everyone who has recounted anything since the time we know began, and no one in that known time has done anything but tell and tell, or prepare and ponder a tale, or plot one. And, okay, you're going to tell us that this is true, but you're recounting something at the same time. So you also know in the same moment that you are creating a fiction. And not only does he create, uh, not only is he creating a fiction and retelling it, he also starts to not exactly fictionalize, but dramatize the lives of different people within, within this book. I mean, he may have all the facts, but he's filling in, he's filling in emotional moments. He's filling in the, the, the weight of a person's life that, I mean, I guess you can say that's biography, but I don't know. I think in, in, in the way that he writes and what he's doing, this you can call it a false novel if you want. I think the emphasis really should be on novel. I think this Dark Back of Time still functions maybe as a bit of a corrective on all souls in some respects, but I think it's still largely a fiction and would fit better, definitely deserves more to be um, in the fiction section than in a memoir section, say. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite... Um parts of dark back of time is he goes um, back to Oxford and goes into this um, antiquarian bookstore that's run by this couple. And um, you know, now he's kind of a famous guy. So Mm -hmm. they kind of recognize him and they want to make it known that, you know, that all souls was, was largely 
their bookstore in terms of his shopping and and going to the bookstore but but it really wasn't um and and they just kind of um they also want to kind of perpetuate this this myth or this kind of unrealness to kind of the past which is just kind of another another way of looking i think at at this theme about you know what's true and 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 what's not and you know, I guess everyone has their own interpretation of, of the same past. Yeah. Um, I will also say that that the scene in the bookstore, um, he comes across a, a journal history of the pirates by Daniel Defoe, um, which you can still get. Uh, it's Dover has published it. Uh, Did much, you get it? Oh yes. I got, I got it. Not, I special ordered it after I read this, um, <laughs> read this one. And um, took it with me um, on my honeymoon. Um, we went to the Caribbean for what was actually a pretty disastrous vacation. I got horrific, horrific sunburn and on uh, just, you know, a really, really not great experience. But we were married. That was the important part. But yes, uh, Journal History of the Pirates came with me. Um, and uh, I don't know if I should... Having made this claim that this is a fiction, I don't know if I can say Marius. At the, well, Marius makes the, makes the statement that it's a great book just to have out and to leaf through every so often, not one to really read through. And he's absolutely right. It's just, it's very funny. It's very gross at times, gruesome at times. It's 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 a good book. I I I, I recommend it. It's definitely one that should uh <laughs> that could go into any history section for 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 some fun for some for something a little bit different. Well. Um, no, I was just going to say that um, in addition to pirate books, though, uh, All Souls um, is very much um, the character's quest to find uh, some books about or by John Galsworthy and some of these other people that um, that kind of formed uh, and. Uh, were kind of the the creators of the legend of the kingdom of Redonda, and mm -hmm. I just wanted—I know we'll—you'll talk about that in a little bit. But how many of those writers' books did you purchase based upon your read of All Souls? <laughs> um, I looked into it a little bit, um, and a lot of them are, or at least at the time, were not super readily available. Um, I did pick up one by um, Arthur Mackin at one point, and I. Do think I have one um, one Gosworth Gosworth upstairs? Um, I'll I'll poke around. I'll report back next time. I, I definitely I definitely have a couple, um, but I did not go completely nuts on that. Um, I don't know. You know, I was I, I was a bookseller. Um, obviously, just about to get married. I, I didn't have unlimited disposable income to 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 feed this particular uh, bibliomania. Um, I do want to point out, though, that the uh, couple who own the antiquarian store that think that they are the um, couple in the novel, uh, in All Souls, uh, according to Dark Back of Time, their name, um, their last name is Stone. And in the novel, they're Alabaster. So I think Marius could uh, forgive them for perhaps thinking that th there's a little bit of a closer association than... I, and that's one of the fun... I mean, that's frankly one of the fun things about Dark Back of Time and... In some ways, this—I mean—he is funny in his novels, but I think the the humor sometimes takes a back seat 
to some of his other considerations. I think in his work that's either like outright nonfiction essays or veering more towards it like Dark Back of Time, his sense of humor shows up a little bit more. He knows that he's playing with the reader a bit. He knows that he's he's having some fun with some of his um, prose pyrotechnics. Um, and I enjoy seeing that element uh, of his writing quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, frankly, he could do anything he wanted in his work. Um, I, I just don't feel like I saw the 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 humorous side show up quite. Oh, although All Souls does have an absolutely hysterical um, dining room scene with yes, a, yes, with, with with you know one of the Dons getting progressively more and more excited, uh, staring at the woman that would eventually become his lover, um, pounding the table with a hammer, and just, I mean, it's. When, when you step back and think about what that scene actually would have looked like if you staged it out properly or if it you know had truly occurred, it would look absolutely insane. Like what is happening at this table? What is this man doing as he's staring at this woman's chest, pounding the table over and over? It's, yeah, it's, it's. It's very funny. Some it's per- a great per- scene. The, the the dining room, I don't know. I've not been to Oxford and I certainly haven't been to campus dining room at Oxford or the dining room, I guess, that they reserve for the for the um the the faculty. But it seems like a totally preposterous, tradition bound place that um a little a little stuffy, I think. And that is a very funny scene. I wanted to ask you though, too, when we were, when we were talking about engaging on this project of, of examining Marais's work, um, one of the things that you said to me was that in the earlier novels, you thought that the, the kind of the, the spy theme wasn't really as as prominent perhaps as it becomes later on. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an intimation of it though in All Souls, where he he talks early on in the novel about that Oxford just seems to be this breeding ground for for mm-hmm. MI six because of you know, and it just seems to be the the right atmosphere because it's all bound in secrecy and rumors about people and who knows what and who's working for whom and and kind of secret identities. And so where am I going with this? I guess, I guess that I wanted to know whether in your opinion, you thought that he was kind of like just starting to get interested in that thread here and explores it much more later on, or um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think there's a lot and this is kind of what I was trying to get at with his, what I said earlier about like the removes upon removes upon removes that he creates that he, he seems very interested throughout his writing and the lies that people tell the lies they don't tell and how they tell them, whether they write them down, whether they say them aloud. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think as like an explicit um, consideration of a novel, I think the spy theme builds, uh, becomes even more woven in as a narrative element as you go along, um, as you read uh, subsequent works. And I certainly think that that peaks in some respects in um, your face tomorrow, though it doesn't go away entirely. It's not like he exercised it from his system. Um, 
but I, I do think it's much more of a consideration of how people, the faces that people are presenting to the world and what, what those things mean. I mean, there is a way to read this a little bit in, in some of the, you know, the, the illicit love affair. Um, although I wouldn't even call it a love affair, the illicit affair. I'm not sure how much love they're actually, I mean, certainly there wasn't very much love coming from the lovers. And, um, whereas the narrator seemed to be trying to tell himself that he didn't love her on some level. Um, but yeah, some, some of, some of those elements I think are definitely playing it, playing into it and, and cut back to this idea of, uh, of espionage on a certain level. Um, I said to you, uh, you know, in some of the prep for today that I almost want to start referring to a lot of what he does as hauntings, that it isn't even like that calling it a ghost story might be too far. It doesn't really have all the DNA or the structure of a proper ghost story, but that the narrator is certainly haunted by this space, uh, by this place, by this time. Um, and in a lot of his work, it's reflecting back on a certain period or a certain occurrence. Um, and even the explorations of memory or, or why people do the things they do in the you know hundreds of pages that a second will take uh, in, in the narrative time, um, it, you know, it, is that as well as this, you know, this archaeology uh, of a person. Um, there's, yeah, there, there, there's a ghostliness, but I think, I think haunting might, might work better. Um, and even the, the doorman that he describes, uh, Will, uh, at the very beginning of All Souls. Um, Will is a 90-year-old man. He'd been, clear, clearly has, you know, I don't even know if you want to call it dementia per se, but he's unstuck. Um, he's functional, but he doesn't always, he always knows what day it is. It just doesn't usually correspond to the actual day or year that it is. Um, so you're watching this man relive his life out of order. Um, and there's a gentleness to how he describes it. And I think that it's at the very beginning of the novel kind of gives a sense of where he thinks memory, where he thinks experience ends up at, what it plays in a person's life, or at least what he's trying to get across uh, through these characters. Um, which also, again, though, ties back into Dark Back of Time and him insisting that he has some, some claim to uh, ownership over this. And this is, this is All Souls is a novel that has been put out into the world. Um, it does share some autobiographical, like, data with with his own um and so if what folks read into that i think is more than a little bit out of his control and i think he knows that and i think he's having a bit of fun in some ways i mean i think he's very serious about being like certain things did not happen i did not have an affair etc but i think he also recognizes an opportunity there to really kind of mess with well Am I in charge here? You read the novel. Are you in charge? Who like who actually gets to say what what is taking place here? Um, which has always been something I, I'm fascinated with when it comes to writing and writers, especially the ones that pay some some mind to that. Like, does authorial intent really matter at the end of the day? Um, I find myself more coming down on the Umberto Echo side of things that it's the uh, 
intent of the text that probably matters more more than the rest. And, and I like that because that's much more the nexus of the reader and the author and what they what they are both bringing to the table in this moment and creating um, in, in the reading. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I've had different authors tell me that they don't really, oftentimes they're not really thinking about an intention that they want a reader to get, take from the book. They just want, they just want to surprise or thrill the reader. And in Mm -hmm. whatever way that happens, that's, that's fine. Um, but yeah, there's a, there is this just kind of, um, storytelling and story making that, that is just kind of a theme in, in, all of his books, I think, in terms of, um, you know, the stories we tell ourselves and then the stories that, um, that are told about us or that involve us and kind of how they refract differently, depending on what perspective you're, you're looking at, at them from. Right. And that I think cuts, that's probably a good segue into talking a bit more about Redonda um, and, and what happens there. So uh, in All Souls, um, Marius does does play with, I mean, the, hmm, it's going to talk about fiction again, but I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, there is a connection between uh, Terrence Armstrong, um, whose uh, pen name of uh, Gosworth um was a king of Redonda. And Terence Armstrong is also the name of the lover of the mother of the narrator's lover in All Souls. So Maria starts to kind of create this sort of weird relationship, this potential that maybe it was the same person and maybe it led to X, Y, and Z. Um, but he also does spend, like, as you said, he's looking for more books and more of the work uh, of these folks associated with this strange, strange story. Um, his writing about that is what led to his being made literary executor and the new king of Redonda. Um, yeah, let's just so that it's clear for our listeners, um, it is the case, right, Tom, that. Um, before this description of the kingdom of Redonda and and the legacy and who started it and how it got passed down, there's really no no role for Javier Moraes in as being a king of Redonda or in the kingdom. It was it was based on his interest in it and the then the I don't know how often this it was talked about in other books by other authors. This literary kingdom, which is actually a a place, a rock, but also a literary kingdom. Um, and that was, that was just kind of what led to him kind of being asked to take on this role. Correct. Correct. Um, or at least that's how I understand it. I, as with many things, when it comes to Redonda, it is very confused and all over the place. Um, I will say a great book to dig into if some of this is of interest, um, Biblio Oasis books just brought out this past uh, September, Try Not to Be Strange, The Curious History of the Kingdom of Redonda by uh, Michael Hingston. Um, 
it's fun. Uh, it does touch on Marius, but it mostly is, it, it's in many ways, the writer's exploration of this fascination that he had with this whole story. Um, exploration, so, literal and, and actual. He, he yes. goes to Redonda, he goes to the rock. Yep. And, um, in, and in so doing happens upon one of the other uh, contested kingships of, of Redonda, um, which again is one of the fun things about Redonda is that there are, are multiple uh, kingships claimed. Um, so we touched on this last time. Um, MP Sheil uh, says that he was proclaimed king of Redonda by uh, his father while they were in the Caribbean. Redonda is this uh, little spit of island um, very near to Montserrat, visible from Montserrat. Um, Sheil was a writer, of, uh, mostly fantasy fiction. Um, he eventually uh, passed on um, the kingship uh, and is and his liter his literary legacy to uh, John Gosworth, um, also known as Terence Armstrong. Um, yeah, and so Gosworth has it. Um, he eventually passes it along as well uh, to uh, John Wynne Tyson. Um, uh, Gosworth dies in 1970. I, I, I should make this a little bit clear. M.P. Shield becomes the king of Redonda in the late 19th century. Um, he is one of those British writers. I don't know how it is that so many English writers end up living into their 90s, but it seems like an awful lot of them do. Because she was born in um, 1865 and lived to 1947. Um, and that's that's a pretty tumultuous period of history to, to live through uh, uh, in, in advanced years. That's a long time. And I think... Um, am I mistaken? But he himself was primarily a, a writer of ghost stories. Is that right? Yep. So, you know. More ghostliness. I'm, I, I, I don't think I'm entirely grasp, <laughs> grasping at straws at, um, at times. Um, so, uh, Gosworth uh, in his life um, also, well, some folks claim that um, – he passed on uh, the kingship to them, um, which is what's created some of the, these rival uh, lines. Uh, John Wynne Tyson, however, uh, did take over the literary executorship of uh, Gosworth, um, along with another writer named uh, Ian Fletcher. Um, eventually, and I'm just double checking my notes to make sure I've got, I've got this completely right, um, when Tyson passed it on, um, abdicated actually, and passed it on to Marius, um, and which also transferred the literary executorship of Gosworth and Scheele, um, because of how Marius wrote about um, Redonda and um, Terry Armstrong uh, in All Souls. Uh, so I've also been using a, a companion to Javier Marius by David K. Hertzberger, which has been helpful in elucidating a few things. Marius wrote an essay about Redonda before um, All Souls was published. Really? Um, the essay's in Spanish, so I've not been able to dig into it. I might ask a friend to uh, do me a solid and give it a look, or I'll finally learn Spanish and do it myself. Um, so he was aware of it. Um, and I mean, he had to be in order to write about it. Um, so this is obviously a fascination of his, uh, of Marius's. Um, but in All Souls, obviously, he talks about Terrence Armstrong. He you know, explores Redonda a bit. In Dark Back of Time, he goes into it further 
Um, and so there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of factual, like historical information around this. There's also competing claims to how, how the kingship passed on, which I think is where it gets fun, at least where it gets fun for me. I think the mythology of Redonda, even with all the sort of competing uh, claims uh, to kingship, I just think this idea of a of a literary kingship, this island that in any real way showing up so so often in um, this major author's uh, work is a really fascinating, really interesting thing. It's I don't know, it's the kind of thing that fires up the imagination, um, and, but again plays into sort of the haunting, the ghostliness of it. You can't really nail down. You can't really nail down what Redonda is at the end of the day. You know, is it a, is it a make believe kingdom? Yes, but it's also an actual physical island. Does the physical island really matter? I really count for much in, in the world. It's just covered in guano. Well, so no, it doesn't. But without it, you don't have this kingdom. Um, who actually is the king of Redonda at any given moment? Um, it's fascinating and fun, and I think it also. I mentioned earlier about Marius's humor. I think in some ways this is a bit of whimsy for him too. And I, I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate seeing that, uh, that side of, uh, of a writer whose work I respect so much. Yeah. The, um, the kind of more recent claims to kingship of Redonda is really dealt with quite well in, mm-hmm. in Michael Hingston's try not to be strange. And maybe we can put this in um, the show notes Tom, but um, we had Michael on uh, my other podcast, Across the Pond, and um, we interviewed him for that podcast. And uh, I'd be happy to kind of reference the episode number, which I don't know off the top of my head, but in case anyone wants to to dig into that a little bit further and listen to our, our interview of Michael. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll drop a link into the notes, but um, if you're not already listening to Across the Pond, um, you really should. Uh, it's very fun. I've I've enjoyed it greatly. Uh, it's it's fun when it drops into the feed, and I don't know. You you you've, you've definitely um, you guys have definitely brought on some writers that I wouldn't have come across otherwise, or I would have come across in a different circumstance. I'll, I'll say like the Patrick McCabe episode might be my favorite, um, in no small part because his novel, which I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce um, the title of, uh, also from Bibliolasis, which is kind of a, a fun coincidence just now. Um, it's it's wild, but it's also very intimidating right on the page. But when he reads it, you hear the music of what he's doing and it becomes so much easier to actually just read on the page, having heard him heard him say it out loud. So, yeah. Yeah, the novel is called uh, by Patrick McCabe is Pogue Mahone. And yeah, it's well worth the the time to just listen to the, the excerpt that he reads from the book because his accent is just so perfect. Mm-hmm. So I'm always happy to shamelessly plug your other podcasts, Lori. Thanks, Tom. No problem. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to dig into uh, on these two? I mean, I will say that I think that this is... We're going to talk about some of his other works. Um, the uh, A Man of Feeling, The Man of Feeling will be one of the next ones we talk about. And that came out before All Souls. Um, I do think that this mark, this also specifically, um, 
and in its response, Dark Back of Time, kind of mark a bit of a change in what Marius's project was. Uh, he becomes much more, the voice of the novel becomes even more introspective isn't quite right, but um, maybe reflexively introspective. Um, some of the themes of espionage telling what you don't tell that the haunting quality to it i think really starts to kick into gear at this point and i really do think it's it kind of culminates in your face tomorrow which we're building up to over the next few episodes so there is something if you're looking at his career as a whole um all souls definitely it's a bit of a depart it's an evolutionary moment for how he's writing what he's trying to do i think um and and where yeah where his work is going ultimately so you would say that you think that that Marais had a project a comprehensive project that he was working towards it wasn't just iterative one book after the next i, I don't think that in no small part because i think a lot of his books i mean you could you could ultimately i mean you could it's it, it it probably wouldn't work, but you could make the argument that his novels are, you, you could probably pop the narrator in and out of each novel and it it would be clean. It would work. You could see, especially from All Souls on, you could see that as the like history of a person over time, um, getting up to what takes place in um, uh, Your Face Tomorrow. But I do think, I mean... <sighs> I do think he had a project. I think he was really trying to dig into um, what people, why people say they are who they are, why they, why that is, why they represent themselves the way they do in the world. What, what does that mean if it means anything? Um, I mean, I think he was really investig, trying to investigate something about people, maybe about himself, but that's, you know, kind of a, provocative statement um yeah i i think i think he was i think he was working on something i think he was exploring something um that and this and you know fiction writing writing in general but fiction writing in particular was uh the avenue in which in which he chose to really kind of dig into it and go after it um and yeah i think certainly his family's history and relationship um to the civil war in spain plays a huge role in that um, especially when it comes to what you say out loud, what, how simply saying something can become an accusation, can become a denunciation, can put someone's life in danger. Um, so yeah, I, maybe, maybe the best way to put it, um, this is somewhat off the cuff, so it might not work, but, uh, his project was exploring, um, language, like what, and, but the effect of language, what, what what we say and what it does and how powerful that is. Um, yeah. Well, maybe it'll be interesting at the end of this, of our project of looking at, at his works to kind of contemplate whether we think he had, his project had culminated at the point that he died or whether there were, I mean, as we both love his work, I know that we both very much wish that he was still around to keep writing and, and keep giving us things. But um, it'll be interesting to see once the, uh, once we talk about the, the yet to be published in English uh, last book, Thomas Nevinson, whether or not that 
that kind of feels like, yeah, he kind of, he kind of hit the mark on what he was trying to do. Or whether I, you know, I might change my mind by the end. I might decide there was no project. I don't think, <laughs> All right. I, I don't, I don't think that'll be the case, but you know, I'm, I'm going to keep an open mind to it and please feel free to tell me at the end if you're like, you know what? There was no project. He was just, <laughs> this is just how he wrote. And that's totally cool too. He was so. just having fun. Novel by yeah. novel. I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, uh, a, a good, um, a good kind of thing for us to think about over the next episodes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Lori.